Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I'm Aaron Cameron. With me, of course, Adam Pawatic. Recording live at the Toronto Real Estate Forum. It's awesome to be here. Our guest today is a gentleman named Mike Chestahovsky, Vice Chair, CBRE, Land Services Group. This is the second time we've had Mike on. First time we've met Mike in person. You've done this before, so this is not your first rodeo. If you want to have Mike's full backstory, we will put the link in our show notes. We're going to kind of skip through how he got to where he is today as Vice Chair at CBRE Land Services Group and jump right into the meat of the conversation. First, Mike, thanks for joining us again. Nice to be back. We'll just summarize. He's a land expert. Yes. 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 With a storied history, with lots of experience. Yeah. You should not doubt you are talking to one of the most, the foremost experts in land in the Golden Horseshoe area. So we've got the right person but here. Don't hesitate to go back and listen to that episode, but <laughs> yeah, that also is the, go back, the summary. Yeah. 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 Subscribe and like and all those good things that you're supposed to do with podcasts that we never promote. Land's a really interesting topic these days. I mean, it's probably the most talked about component of real estate at large because it's just, it's un- the unknown. We were just talking about Maury Taz. I know you have a relationship with him. Maury's the founder and still works at First National. He's got this funny saying, and you're not going to like this, but you wouldn't be surprised. Maury kind of goes, well, land's worth nothing right now because there's nobody to buy it. And that's probably an overstatement, I'm sure. But let's kind of dig into that. First and foremost, you know, Mike, just give us sort of the state of the union. Where are we right now with land and the Golden Horseshoe? What are your just sort of 30,000 feet thoughts? Well, certainly our private and institutional developers are still buying. Of course. They're that much more careful. They want a little bit more time on due diligence. They want a little bit more time on closing. I haven't seen prices adjust like I've seen terms adjust. Bigger vendor take back mortgages, a little bit more interest free. Longer duration on those VTVs? Everyone's careful not to go over five years because of tax purposes, but certainly the VTVs are getting a little bit more aggressive and that's what purchasers are looking for at this time. If they're taking VTBs at low interest rates, is that not essentially a discount to the value? Because the alternative, of course, would be going to a finance group where land is very expensive right now? Yes. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Fair enough. It's just easier when that face value doesn't move, right? And Good for the soul. (laughs) Just easier to deal with. And of course, the fees are obviously on the face value. So we're not as concerned about terms. (laughs) Do you want to, let's go to financing first, because it's a component, of course, of land costs. I mean, the financing side of land has been challenged in the last sort of 8, 12, 18 months. I can tell you just from First National's perspective, of course, we're not nearly as active in land generally, but particularly now we're not seeing it. And then of course, land is often floating over prime, which is up three, 400 basis points. So like the cost of financing land is expense, has become much more expensive. Are you seeing that impact decision-making? I think you'll see it on the smaller and mid-sized developers. Our large developers have relationships with the large banks that doesn't seem to be a concern. It's almost like a line of credit. Yes. Where we see concerns is the smaller, under $20 million. If they have a vendor take back mortgage or a mortgage rolling, there are some concerns, and we have concerns for them because sometimes the liquidity of those smaller parcels of land is not the easiest thing. So if you're looking at a couple of offers you have on a piece that's listed, do you think about their ability to close more now in the current environment than you would have you know, a year ago? We give recommendations to the vendors based on our knowledge of the purchaser and ability to close and track record in dealing through due diligence and closing obviously plays into it. So if someone's slightly higher, but we don't know them and we're concerned about their ability, we strongly suggest to the vendor to stick with the known quantity uh, 
known developer that has the ability to close. And is that always the standard advice? Or if we were in a really healthy, robust market with tons of liquidity, would you say, well, hey, maybe you want that extra $300,000? It's always the advice. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> it's always the advice. Go with someone we know. This is an interesting time in our community in commercial real estate because it's not for lack of money, right? There's a ton of capital still available in the marketplace. Whether you're institutional, even the mid-market size, there's a, there's a ton of people that are sitting on just a pile of funds waiting for an opportunity. What kind of conversations are you having right now with your clients? Well, 75, 80% are still pens up looking at active opportunities, want to buy. 25% are pens down. Those people are pens down until the right listing comes along and then they're pens up. So certainly the ones even with pens down are looking for opportunities, whether it be in a traditional area that they're already in or where they can get what they feel is a deal. What do you say to vendors though? Because I appreciate everybody's kind of vends up with this opportunistic approach. There isn't a ton of transactions going on. I mean, comparatively, simply because I think there's a misalignment between expectations on the vendor side and what the purchasers need just to make their pro forma escape properly. We're being careful on the listings we, we take. You have to have a vendor that is aligned with today's pricing, whether it be a reduction in price overall or a more aggressive terms that are available. So do you say no to somebody showing up saying, I think I can get X price, and you go, that's never going to be get 2021's price? Yeah, yeah, and you just say, sorry, that I don't want to bother. It's a waste of my energy and resources. 50% of the time. Wow. And not just in land, but surveying the landscape now for commercial real estate opportunities, you do see a wide range of pricing expectations. Some people have adapted to the new reality of, you know, interest cost obviously impacting value, and others still just taking a flyer. But I can see why you would not want to spend the energy on doing a full cycle listing to try and get a price that's never going to be reached. No, and we have competitors that go in and promise the moon. It doesn't happen, but we don't want to smoke and mirrors our vendors. We have good clients and we don't want to misrepresent what we can get. And how do you approach then on the buy side? How do you approach a listing that you think is out of line with the current reality? We won't take it. <laughs> no, so I mean, I mean if, you, if you're working on the purchaser's side, you wouldn't bother putting together an offer on it to no. try and adjust expectations of reality? No, you may have a conversation with a listing broker, maybe directly with a vendor as to, is it something that they're going to look at something more realistic? But generally, we won't chase that type of business. It's, you're wasting your time. <laughs> yeah. I started my career at Collier's and I sold one piece of land the entire time I was there because that's not what I did. The initial offering on a listed piece of dirt up in, uh, where was it? Uh, the Oshawa area came in at 63% of our listed price. And that was an absolute waste of time. And then we haggled back and forth and I'm closing at 96% of our listed price. That's a significant move. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And my vendor, he understands the game. The other side, it was somebody who's not spent much time in the commercial arena. And my takeaway from that is, you know, because they approached with this screw around method, I mean, we almost just threw it in the garbage straight at the gates going, we're never going to get there. This, this gap is way too far. Counter back and forth and all of a sudden, you know, the sun and the moon all move for us and we have a deal. But that was an eye opener to uh, people trying to screw around. And you probably have more of that in an environment like we have now where there is this disconnect to reality in terms of transactions in the marketplace. There is. And you have brokers, not only with our competitors, but a lot of small one-off brokers that aren't as versed with our businesses, giving advice to people that have large assets, and it's the wrong advice. And a lot of times, people don't realize the difference, but they need to go to an expert. Just like anything else in life, you're not going to your dentist to fix your car. <laughs> yeah. So you have to wake up and realize that a land expert has done 100 land transactions, not 10, not five, 100. How many have you done? Well over 200. 
we only tracked back to 2000 and it's over yeah. well over two. Really? Why not before 2000? What was the uh, It was all done on spreadsheets. Yeah. 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 It was printed paper. It, you know, in <laughs> stone tablets. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so can we stop for a second? As far as asset classes go, if you call in one of them, the one I have the least familiarity with, and maybe this is not appropriate, but I'm assuming there's a lot of people out there like me. Can we just break down the different types of land? Because I know that there's a, and I, what I want to get into is if there are varying activities dependent on the type of land, whether you've got residential and there's employment, what else? Can you just kind of break it down a little bit? just from sure. a, Well, in residential, there's, there's, we judge re- residential by density. So single family on a one acre, 43,560 square feet. If it's perfectly square, I can, I can fit seven 50 foot lots. On a perfect one acre, I can fit 20. 20-foot townhouses. And then you get into medium density where you get into stacked towns, back-to-backs, and then you're going into mid-rise and high-rise. Employment, obviously, is industrial, office, some variation in between for retail. You get convenience retail, small corners, grocery anchored, and you get into the malls and up from there. So really, that kind of breaks down your residential, employment, retail. And then you go into your green belt, which up to recently is untouchable. And then you go into Oak Ridge's Moraine that even is more untouchable. What is that? Just so, just for the- so it's an area within the green belt that province deemed to be even more sensitive oh, okay. to any future development. Uh, Niagara Escarpment, similar to that. And then you go into White Belt where it's not designated within an official plan. It's not in the green belt. It's in between. So it is future development land, but there's no distinct timing attributable to it. Other than probably a long timing? Today, yes. Yeah. Okay. If you're even within an official plan, it's long timing. Yeah, true. <laughs> so, I mean, you clearly then have to be sort of a zoning expert. Yes, we have two planners on staff uh, within our team. And when a client approaches you and they're looking at a piece of land that's a one type of zoning and they have an intention or potential to change the zoning, how complicated does that become? Well, it's political. There's the real aspects, the planning, the engineering of it. But then there's that political side. And the politics within planning and development today is significant. So a lot of times, without speaking to the local politicians, you have no idea what the potential is with the land. And we always do. That is part of the, just your consulting expertise, is to know who the politicians are and what their particular opinions are on development and appetite for change in their communities, that kind of thing. Obviously. Whole period is the biggest killer of deals. So if you're not getting that right, you're putting yourself in big jeopardy. Yeah, you want to think what the municipality's thinking or city's thinking for the land and what their potential is, if there is a chance of rezoning it or upzoning it. But that being said, there's politics that we're not privy to. Right. Recent mayoral or Toronto city councilor change, positive change generally or negative yes. change? Positive change? Positive. That's good. Happy to hear that. <laughs> Need more development in the city. If you haven't heard, there's an affordability issue. Well, we've had sites sitting on major corners on the subway where planning staff told us they didn't want density. And I told the planners, if we're not intensifying subway lines, where should we put it? You know, people need to live on transit. So yes, more power and less red tape is good. 
I live near uh, Royal York Subway Station. I think I've mentioned this on this on the site before, but it irks me every time I walk by the this site. Is this a West Bank site? No, this is, I think one property's owned it, and then uh, I think it did trade again. It used to be a car wash. It's West Bank. It is West Bank, okay. Yeah. Or at least it was last I checked, I don't know, a year ago. There was a, a big to-do in the neighborhood because it was zoned for six stories. You could throw a stone and hit the subway station if you had a decent arm. And they wanted to go to nine stories, not 20, not 30, nine, six to nine. And the neighborhood association raised $200,000 from all the neighbors to get lawyers and fight it. They were door knocking nonstop, all because you were talking about Bloor Street in uh, area 20 minutes from downtown Toronto. A stone's throw from a subway station wanted three extra stories, and it was just the, the apocalypse had happened in our quaint little Hamlet neighborhood. <laughs> well, we need to do what's the greater good for planning. We need to take power away from those politicians that are voting based on what their ratepayers want, and that's how they get reelected, and put the power back in independent bodies that are making decisions based on, is this right for the neighborhood? Is it right planning? Is it for the better good? We need housing in the city. So yes, local residents shouldn't be able to stop it just because they disagree with it for their own purposes. And it's the perfect site for a nine-story building beside a subway station. And yeah, as, as you just said, if you're not putting density there, where are we putting it? Exactly. We're not going to start doing 100-story condo towers downtown. No. We're going to get back into the fundamentals of land, but we're kind of on this track, so we'll keep going. What percentage of your time is spent on the transaction and the deals versus more not lobbyist work, but just higher level, 30,000-foot discussions, decisions, thought? You're not doing as much transactions as you used to, or is that still kind of where you try to spend most of your time? Or is that a challenge? It's an internal debate regularly. Well, it depends on the transaction. Some transactions I need to be more involved in on a day-to-day basis, some less. I have an excellent partner and a really good team. So they do a lot of the heavy lifting. And is my time more higher level, new business with clients? Yes. Talking to politicians, lobbying. Podcasting. Yeah, podcasting. (laughs) Whatever it takes. (laughs) We keep pumping up your old episodes. It's kind of funny, but you actually talked about a number of large, really interesting transactions on the last episode. So I'd encourage you again, go back if you want to get uh, into a deep dive of some of Mike's more high profile transactions. It was excellent. We talked a bit about deal flow and the 200 you've done since the year 2000 and the question mark before that. How significant is the slowdown now? And when do you think the slack's going to come back up? Well, certainly we're not getting calls with any panic to sell land, both from receivers, lenders, or directly from vendors. Now, that may change over time. If you ask me when is there going to be opportune times to buy something with a little bit more pressure to the vendor, you know, next year, spring to fall. I think you may get a couple of people that are under pressure with mortgages rolling, interest rate changes. There may be a few people that get pushed, but I don't think it's going to be a lot. And you see it similar to 2020 when we had a pens down six, seven months there. But when the bell rang to everybody jump back in the pool, it was a stampede. You know, people say their pens down, but they still call on a regular basis. They're still calling to get together, have working lunches and lunches. People are still looking. There's a lot of capital sitting there waiting for opportunities. And some of our developers are bidding today saying normally they're bidding against 10, but all of a sudden they're bidding against two. So they feel that's an opportunity in itself. Do the vendors get surprised when there's only two that show up and it's at a percentage lower than they're asking? We tell them ahead of time. They, they're aware. That they have to be prepared. This is a different market. Right now. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want that to be the point where the reality comes up. I find it really interesting because we've now this has become, this Q3 2023 is sort of the time frame that a lot of people are talking about as far as the beginning of the next cycle, if you want to think about it that way. There's always this sort of first of the first movers concept though, right? Because you don't want to be... 
you want to be opportunistic, but you want to hit it at the right time. How do you kind of advise your clients on what metrics to look for? Maybe is a better way to put it. Like, what are they kind of assessing the, the to early go? Early indicators. Yeah, now yeah. is the time to go. Or is it just literally just the stress on the vendors that is the biggest telling point? Just the right opportunity. When that good piece of dirt comes up, jump on it. Because we've seen over the with last... With 15 other people. With 15 other... It's, <laughs> yeah, over the last 15 years, we've seen the good sites less and less. So a lot of our stuff is held by institutional and big developers. And when something decent, whether it be 416 or 905, comes up, you have to jump on it. Can you define decent in your, your world? Makes sense. Is Makes it sense. big or... No, not necessarily. You know, generally our deals go five to $200 million. And we'll do smaller if you phone me and say, hey, you have to sell this for me. We'll do it. But most of our developers are happy in that 50 to $150 million range. So if something decent in one of their traditional areas show up, they have to look at it and they are still looking at it. One of the things that comes up when Adam and I do these interviews with developers and your clients that are on the land acquisition side, they're clearly working for developers or end users, but they're at the front end of the process. And they always talk about creativity. And we're hearing more about you know, the need to be innovative. And when you have in situations like this that we're facing in our economy, the innovative, find ways to make things work, look at things a little bit differently. Are you seeing that? Like, are you having clients call that were typically kind of more traditional, let's just buy it and build it this way, but now they're calling saying, wait, if I buy it and I change the use, or if I'm doing mixed use versus just standard industrial, or you know, are you seeing any... Any differences, any different different approaches? And can you kind of maybe describe a couple? Certainly, you know, we've seen things on the employment side. We marketed a property recently. And for the first time, two of the three bidders were going to do stack warehouses for logistics. And we hadn't seen that before. And it was in an area that was, transportation was there. But the demographic for those warehouses especially was there. Meeting the, the employers, yes. the employees. Employees. On the residential side, are they getting more creative with the type of residential? They're doing, yes. We're seeing more intensification within the 905 where traditional singles might be there, but it's a mix of more medium density and back-to-backs and stacks all of a sudden are coming into the mix to intensify the overall site. As long as you've got political (laughs) buy-in. Well, we have places to grow, so we do have to intensify even in the 905. And most municipalities want a mix of housing types. Well, politics and land have been making a lot of headlines here in Ontario recently. Maybe we should talk, we touched on the Greenbelt briefly. Everybody not from Toronto, the Greenbelt is a circle of protected land that encapsulates the GTA. The idea being that it'd be preserved in perpetuity. Recently, it has been announced that there's going to be a swap, that we're going to take part of the Greenbelt back for development. I can't remember the exact size of the swap, but it's a pretty sizable amount of acreage in exchange for land held outside of the Greenbelt that would then be designated a new green sanctuary. There's been a lot of mixed opinions. I'd love to know where you stand on this I'm uh, sure Mike's issue. outraged. Yeah. <laughs> well, those of us that were around when the Green Belt was instituted were surprised the way the lines were drawn. They didn't really make sense. And you hear various stories about how the lines were drawn, but there should never be a straight line for Green Belt. A stream, a forest does not grow unless it's man-made on a straight line. So a lot of the lines needed to be adjusted. Was it drawn a little bit haphazard? In our opinion, it was. Is there other lands to preserve a little further out? So if you're trading one for two, is that a good deal? I think so. So the lands that are being released are in prime residential areas where in need of housing. 
I'm in agreement with it. I, I don't see anything that I'm really concerned about the way it's being done. The lands that are being released are primarily in the 905. It makes sense. Abutting existing development. Yes. Like without the green belt, they would have logically been the next parcels to go. Yes. And our developers, a lot of them, have held these lands prior to the green belt being instituted. Well, some made headlines because they haven't owned it <laughs> that long. long. Yeah. No. Yeah. There was a recent purchase, I think, last year that people seem to be zeroing in on as possibly shenanigans. But Well, I, I, mean, I think that's the only one that I saw purchased recently. And what people have to realize is land deals do not happen overnight. This deal could have been done two years ago, and there could have been a conditional period, could have been due diligence going on, could have been an extended closing. We're not privy to the parts of the deal and what the length of time was, but we've done interviews for the newspapers where we took them through why people didn't know that far ahead of time about a highway being there. And we went through 45-minute interviews, and then the media decided not to air anything that was reality and just focus on the negativity to a developer. These developers don't know that far ahead that these kind of things are going to happen. The land that was released in Pickering, they've owned for 22 years. So if you have a 22-year crystal ball, you probably wouldn't have bought the land yeah. if you thought it was 22-year-old. When they bought the land, they were thinking probably five years, yeah. not 22 yeah. years. If anything, this is a bad outcome. Yeah. Yes. The other contentious issue that came up around this recent Greenbelt announcement is that the land being swapped for was already protected to some degree. So you're not increasing the stock of protected land around the GTA. Any view on that one? I'm not as familiar with the land they're putting in. Okay. But there's conservation people, there's consultants as to the sensitivity of the land, and maybe they want to prevent any development that could have occurred. So there's variations as agricultural land. Maybe they even want to prevent any kind of other uses that are allowed on agriculture. And that's why they put these lands in the green belt. There's a reason why they're putting them in. There must be some sensitivity to them for future development. It's an interesting, and we'll move on after this, but it is a very interesting concept because, you know, we have this ESG initiative that we are all very sensitive to and focused on in our community. E being the environmental, S being the social. And this is where there's a bit of a conflict, right? Because the Green Belt was sort of to support the environment, right? Support the conservation of nature. But we need that land for building housing to help battle the S part, the, the problems of affordability. So you kind of have the E and the S sort of fighting it out right now. Both very, very important. And it's a, it is a very complicated discussion because it is, both are right. I mean, you can't, can't say, no, we shouldn't protect the land, protect the environment, but you also need houses to help house people and create sort of affordability in our city. So it's a really contentious and challenging. And I don't envy any of the, the policymakers that have to stand in the middle of those two sides. I agree 100% with what they did yeah, with no, releasing fair. the land. And I'm an economist by background, and it's simple economics. The supply issue was a big problem. Both from municipal and regional levels, we were constrained by supply and timing. What the province did is going to help. And in 10 years, when people are living on those houses and prices continue to be reasonable, people will look back and go, this was the decision to make. It's a tough decision that the province made, but it's the right one to do. We'll move on because I want to do talk about some other opportunities in the marketplace, but there was some advertisement on, on the radio on the way in this morning about you know how call your local politician because you should be outraged about the green belt being released. And in my mind, I thought clearly they own houses, like the people that are supporting that, they're <laughs> house owners. And there's almost this like, if you own a house, you're on one side of the debate. If you don't own a house, you're on the other because exactly. you're like, wait a minute, no, no, I need those houses to be built in order for me to be a house owner like you. So 
very fascinating. Opportunities. You look at the Golden Horseshoe and around, and you say there are transactions. Where are the transactions? Where's the kind of the most interest right now in your neighborhood? Yeah, what's, just for people not familiar with the area, what's your drive range in terms of what you'd be looking at deals using uh, downtown Toronto as the epicenter? Although you do live quite a bit outside of Toronto now, but <laughs> I do. It's my way. Four one six nine zero five is probably eighty five percent of our business. We are going a little further afield. We've done work Barrie, Niagara, Peterborough recently. Our developers, for the first time in a while, are asking us for longer-term land and land outside that area, more into the greater Golden Horseshoe. Hamilton, Niagara, Barrie, north of Barrie, Peterborough, Lindsay, all these areas that are just outside of our area are coming into play more and more. I think a lot of that has to do with transportation, where people work. So if you work in Oshawa or in Durham, Living in Lindsay is not a bad drive in, right? All of a sudden, that becomes the reasonable It's a 30-minute drive. That's right? normal. And as our employment areas spread and grow up to 400, people are willing to go that much further out to live because the homes are a little bit more affordable, too. But what's the opportunity is still the same thing. Look for the right opportunities. Ask for better terms. People are still looking in our traditional 416-905 areas but our developers are looking longer term. So if you were going to be the next family dynasty land bank mega developer three generations from now, and you're trying to set up your grandkids for that, where would you be buying up gigantic tracts of land right now? Good question. Peter, um, I'm just yeah, <laughs> yeah, Maybe that's the answer. <laughs> Possibly. I really like Durham, and I like the north end of Durham, future, what we call future Seton, and we sold a lot of land to developers there. And I selectively going out of town, going to the greater Hamilton area. But there's still a lot of opportunities in the 905. But I will not discount buying sites in the 416 outside the core. How often do you kind of sit there and think, where is the next big transportation hub? So, I mean, we hear about, what's the, sorry, now you can't remember the technology where they shoot you in a vacuum from Toronto to Montreal. The and Hyperloop. The Hyperloop. <laughs> and we've talked about high-speed trains going from Toronto to Montreal. Like, are you trying to at least crystal ball some of that stuff because clearly that has a major impact on the value of land if those things start to get announced. To tell you the truth, we don't watch it. It's just a fool's errand kind of thing? Unless the funding is announced, it's very tough. What's unfortunate is they put in a line across a map. They say there's going to be a future highway and all the land is put into a freeze. I feel bad for those landowners because it's indefinite. And there's a lot of areas that have been in a freeze for a long time. So do we watch it? Somewhat, but it doesn't dictate what we do day to day. What's the rationale behind the freeze? For future highways. They don't have people developing on it and then they're... They'll okay. keep, like when they were doing a buffer, they called 407 Corridor and they didn't know exactly where the highway was going to go. So they froze land on what they proposed both sides. So then they'd be expropriating at current value, not somebody building out a mega mall and having to expropriate that? Yes. Okay. That's yeah, a tough spot to be in. Where do you want to go from here, Mike? We've got about five minutes left. What would be sort of the last sort of topic you want to cover if there's anything that we've missed? The closing thoughts on the uh, state of land in the GTA. Well, like they always say, they're not making any more. Opportunities on the good sites will be rare still. Even if the market slows slightly next year, it's still not going to have a great deal of sites out and about in the market. And developers will have to look at it as when the opportunities come up to jump on them at that time. But it's going to be an interesting year. 
Q3, everybody. That's when it's coming. <laughs> See you in Q4. Yeah. We'll ask you, <laughs> yeah. talk to you then, talk about how busy you are and how you're having a banner, a banner second half. Well, hopefully we'll be really busy and I won't be able to come back. <laughs> yeah. But- yeah. <laughs> We'll see how things go. That's why we got Mike now. He's got a little downtime. <laughs> we'll schedule it now. Yeah. Put it in your calendar. That's it for this one. Thanks to First National for powering the podcast. Of course, the Toronto Real Estate Forum for hosting us here today. And most of all, Mike, thanks for uh, making the time for us. Thank you. Yeah, really appreciate it. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where we talk about the conversation we just had with Mike Chestahowski. Repeat guest. Repeat guest. Completely different environment. Absolutely. Different conversation, obviously. Back then it was, how was COVID impacting land? And he said it was basically non-existent and lands flying off the shelf left, right, and center. Not exactly the same messaging. However, still optimistic, right? It's always interesting when you have these conversations, and this is not directed at Mike, just all in general, when we talk to different participants in the commercial real estate community, everybody has to support their own business lines, right? So of course, Mike's not going to sit here and go, ah, land never being sold, and there's no land anywhere. Nobody wants to buy it. Like, of course he can't. Quite frankly, I thought he was very transparent and honest. Like, It's clearly not as boom as it was. But there is still opportunity. There is still land that can be sold. There is a disconnect between buyers and sellers at times. But there are sellers that do have more realistic expectations. I mean, the reality that he said he turns down 50% of the opportunities to market because the vendors are not realistic just speaks volumes. At least the other 50%, he believes, have some realistic expectation of what their land is worth. And those are the ones that he's having success with. Well, because the process is run by teams at his kind of level. There's a lot of horsepower that goes into it. It's not just fill out an MLS listing form and hope that a buyer shows up. So I get why he does that. One interesting thing I don't think we really talked about would be what percentage of deals are you now saying no to? Because if there's not a huge gap in the buy and the sell side, then you're probably not saying no to a lot of deals because your vendors probably have some somewhat realistic expectation of getting a successful sale through. Whereas now it's just rampant. There's a huge disconnect. So you're probably saying a whole lot more no's And that's probably a little frustrating in an environment where volumes are probably down from the year prior. A deal shows up and you go, hey, great. I'd love to sell this 15 acres. And you find out there's not really a viable sale on the table. You know, one of the things that I think is really interesting with land, and we didn't really talk about with Mike, but we've had him mention it before, or we've mentioned it before, just the volatility of land pricing. Because I wonder how many land deals fell through or how many bidders just pulled out of the process when the price of wood skyrocketed. And they go, well, okay, my performance is off sign. I can't justify this purchase price. And or if you have the luxury of being able to do that in this type of environment, where interest rates are going up and down, and maybe it's just the comment on the certainty and the uncertainty and the prices that people are willing to pay in this type of environment. I'd be really interested now. There's one of those, I always do this. <laughs> I wish I could ask him this question, yeah. right? But I'm curious if he's saying, yeah, today it's worth 350, tomorrow it's worth 370, the next day it's worth 320. And that's just how active, it's almost like the stock market is literally going up and down every day. Well, because land is one of those development inputs that can immediately change and respond to pricing. You know, if the cost of steel or lumber goes up, there's not much a developer can do about that. DCs get bumped up. You're not going to negotiate them down. It just is what it is. Is that it all eventually kind of translates out into a per buildable square foot price that ultimately results in a higher or lower sale price. So land does feel the brunt of those inputs because a lot of them are pretty inflexible in a construction budget. Particularly if those are shovel ready because now you're thinking, what's the pro forma going to look like the day that I close on this transaction? You don't have that luxury that, well, we'll see what happens in two, three years from now. So I bet you it is rather volatile, more so than any other 
transaction in the commercial real estate space. Well, and part of the wild ride of land is a reason that risk adverse people tend to stay away from it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That concludes our thoughts on the land episode. It's great having Mike back on. Hope to get him back on for a third episode because he's definitely coming to be the expert we rely on for that particular asset class. Thanks everybody for listening to the end. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.